Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. To err is human, yet in healthcare and in critical care, we still have an unhealthy relationship with failure. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss the science behind learning to fail. In other words, failing well. We will discuss our flawed relationship to failure, how to better understand failure, and more importantly, how to move from a culture of blame, who did it, to a culture of learning, what happened. Our guest is Amy Edmondson, the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. For the last two and a half decades, she has studied the elements of high-performing teams in complex environments. She has coined the term psychological safety and has made critical insights into teaming, learning from failure, and innovation. She is the author of several books, multiple academic papers, and a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Her latest book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well, was released in September of this year on Hardback. I am truly honored and grateful to have her back on the podcast. Amy, welcome back to Critical Matters. Thank you so much for having me back. So I I would like to start with a rapid fire of just some terms that are often thrown around when we talk about failure and just get your Mm -hmm. your reactions. Uh, One of them that we've heard over and over again in the business world and in the startup world is fail often and fail fast. My reaction is that is too indiscriminate. That is appropriate advice for some contexts, but not for most contexts. Failure is not an option? <laughs> Again, failure is not an option is an interesting one because it's. I believe it's trying to convey the idea that we absolutely must do our very best because of what's at stake. But it can inadvertently drive truth-telling underground. So it, it can it can backfire. So I think whenever we want to use that term, failure is not an option, which I think we is our aspiration in very high stakes situations. We want to make sure we're crystal clear that we're saying, because we don't want to fail, we need to hear from you. Perfect. And last, we don't fail. We are winners versus we don't fail. We are learners. <laughs> Again, lovely sentiment. And it needs to be a bit more nuanced. There are times when we fail. There are times when we fail badly. And many of those are, in, as you know, human beings, are preventable. So, yes, we should learn from all failures. Um, and we should be quite discriminating about the kinds of failures that we're proud to have experienced and those which we are really going to try very hard to never have happen again. Perfect. And before we, we, we go into our troubled relationship with failure, especially in healthcare, <laughs> as a physician, I mean, obviously, we've, we've, we deal with failure on a daily basis, yet we still deal with it in a very, I, I believe, unhealthy way. Could you define failure and how is it different from an error? <laughs> well, failure is a larger, broader term. Failure is an undesired result. An error is a deviation from a known practice, a known process. You know, I I often think of the easy way to talk about this. There is a recipe, but we messed it up, didn't use it properly. So a mistake, the, the concept of mistake only exists when there is knowledge about how to get the result you want. So many failures are caused by mistakes. But many failures are not at all related to mistakes. They're, they're undesired results in new territory. And, and I think that that's a very important distinction to get us started, especially when we're talking to healthcare providers, because mm-hmm. we have been taught that all failures are wrong. And we talk about failure and error and mistake almost in the same context and are unable to, to, to talk about it with maybe a better framework, which I hope that you will provide us today. So why don't we... 
Go ahead, Amy. Sorry. Sorry. I just my my initial reaction, my my immediate reaction to that wonderful point about healthcare is that I think it's easy to lose track of the historical perspective. The remarkable work that you do today in in medicine and healthcare all exists because of a willingness to experiment again i think almost always in cautious thoughtful ways uh, throughout the history of medicine if people had not been willing to experiment in the early days for example of cardiac surgery in the 50s we would not have that medical miracle today i agree now can we talk about our troubled relationship with failure and maybe start with our aversion to failure? How does that impact <laughs> our learning? You know, our aversion to failure as human beings is largely our aversion to our own failures, right? It, it, it turns out that we have less aversion to other people's failures. In fact, sometimes they, they give, give us an unhealthy sort of sense of relief um, or worse. But our aversion to failure, I believe, is quite instinctive. Um, it's, a, it's an emotional reaction um, because we want to be successful. We don't want to fail. We want, we want to look good, not bad. And, and so I think it's, it's both somewhat automatic but also well-learned through our, our childhood and our socialization uh, that, that, you know, that lead us to really want to distance ourselves from failure. And, and what do we commonly get wrong about failure, Amy? Uh, one of the things I think you clearly outlined already is that failure is not always bad. That's one right. of them. But what else, I mean, do, do we get wrong about failure? Well, I think we get what we get wrong about failure is is a sense that it has that it has to be either or. You know, either we're embracing the fail fast rhetoric. Or we're saying, no, you know, failure's off limits, failure's not an option, and you sort of have to take sides. And, and then some people will say, well, there's a balance. I don't think it's a balance. I think it's a um, very specific, you know, context-specific set of principles. So that when you are in, say, a scientific laboratory, if you're experiencing no failures, you are not going to publish very well as a scientist. In other words, if you're on the leading edge of any field, you are experiencing very likely far more failures than successes because your experiments haven't been done before by anyone in the world. And so you might have a very good hypothesis and Mother Nature doesn't agree with you. So in that context, right, that would be a context where you must be failing or you won't be succeeding. Similarly, let's say you're an elite gymnast, right? If you're if you're only doing safe moves that you can do in your sleep, you're not going to make it to the Olympics. If you're trying harder and harder things which involves failing along the way to getting them just right, you'll you will have a better chance of ultimate success. So we have to be thoughtful about failure. Right? We have to say, well, under what conditions is failure truly on? the path toward success and under what conditions are we going to do our very best individually and as 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 groups to prevent them and i think another aspect of failure that people might not uh, appreciate is that it's not that easy to learn from failure we think it is but i think we'll talk about it more it's a bit complicated mm. yes i agree it's um you know, I think oftentimes our our learnings are quite superficial. It's sort of okay. I don't want to do that again. Um, now I just move forward and don't look back. Um, we don't take. We often don't take the time to really look at what happened. You know, what were what were my what was my thinking? What were, what were the actions? Um, why were we wrong? You know, and what does that tell us about what we should be doing going forward? So I don't mean to imply a lengthy, lengthy analysis, but a thoughtful one that, that is clear-eyed and, and willing to do a little bit of that hard work. In medicine, historically, we have examined failure through the very traditional mm. and the toxic M&Ms morbidity right. mortalities and uh, I think some some teams are moving in the right direction but obviously having trained uh, before there were um, hour sets and in a mm -hmm. different culture it seemed that we had that hero mentality that we would just put our head down and say I will do better next time 
but there was really no right. learning there. Could you talk a little bit about the failure and the blame culture? Yes, I do think, you know, it's, it's, um, and Eminem is a good example of this. It, the, the, um, imagine the following, right? What, um, how many failures in, let's say, your medical center, and I would say that to any listener, um, are caused by people engaging in what we might call blameworthy acts, right? where they really, you know, woke up, came to work impaired, uh, or, uh, you know, or, or, or just mailed it in, did sloppy work on purpose, or worse, deliberately set out to sabotage a, a, a case, right? And, I, and most people's answers will be, well, virtually none. I mean, when something like that happens, it's, it's very, very rare. So I say, okay, I'm, I'm with you on that. And then I'll say, well, what percent of failures does your organization, your medical center treat as if they were caused by blameworthy acts? And then either, you know, a gasp or a laugh and people will say, well, most of them. And, and to me, the key to an effective M&M meeting is that we're making that thoughtful distinction. It's not a blame and shame meeting. It's a learning meeting. We recognize that tragically, sometimes things do go wrong. And our aspiration is simply to learn everything we can from it to prevent it from happening again. Not to accuse, blame, criticize, but to truly learn, as, as the scientists you all are, to really learn what happened and how to do better. And to, and to realize that sometimes we have to take care of the clinicians as well as the patients. I mean, if, if, if you go through something like that, like a, a, you know, an, a, a fatal event, especially, um, it, it can be quite traumatic. And so in our aspiration to prevent them again from happening, we have to take care of everybody involved as best we can. That's a great segue to talking about the types of failure. And then we can talk about that some of these types are, like you said, blameworthy and some are praiseworthy. But could you give us an overview of the, the three types of failure? So the three types of failure I identify are basic, complex, and intelligent. And just to get out ahead of this, only intelligent is what I'll call the right kind of wrong, the, the praiseworthy kind. And basic failures are single cause failures. They're caused by human error. We, they're in familiar territory. We had knowledge about how to achieve a result, whether it's a, you know, a chocolate cake or a medical procedure, the knowledge exists and error intervened and led to a failure. Those are obviously not celebratory moments. Uh, those are learning moments to be sure. Uh, but at our very best, we can prevent all of those. And, and not because I'm not saying we can prevent all human error. We cannot to err as human, but in medicine, usually there's at least a space between an error and an outcome. So when we're at our best, we can catch and correct errors before anyone is harmed. We can, we can uh, you know, not deliver the erroneous dose that was just written. We can um, quickly uh, give um, a, a, um, an antidote if, if it gets that far. So, so that's basic failure, single cause, you know, bad mistake leads to a failure. Complex failures are, of course, the real beast in, in medicine and healthcare, which are the Swiss cheese kind of failure. And I define them as they're multi-causal. A handful of factors line up in just the wrong way to create the failure. And any one of those factors on their own would not lead to the bad outcome, right? It, it's, it's the perfect storm. They had to come together. Um, in just the wrong way to, to make the failure, to allow the failure to slip through. Those two are preventable. And quite often, and to me, quite tragically, many complex failures could have been prevented had people felt psychologically safe enough to speak up when they were, you know, not convinced that something was wrong, but just curious about whether something was wrong. When they, when they glimpse what I would call an ambiguous threat or an ambiguous moment in there and they just are afraid to ask for help or or to question a dose or what have you so so complex failures are multi-causal that makes them pernicious but it also gives us many many opportunities to catch and correct 
And then finally, intelligent failures are the still undesired results of novel forays into new territory. So technically, they're experiments, whether it's an experiment in your personal life or an experiment in a laboratory, um, intelligent failure is the outcome that happens when your hypothesis was wrong in new territory. And I think that this framework is extremely important for our clinicians to to understand because it gives them a better way of under, of talking about failures yes. among the team. And uh, what I wanted just to comment uh, from the clinical perspective, Amy, is that the, um, the, the the names basic, complex, and intelligent are really based on the processes that are involved mm. in terms of thinking and, and behaviors and not necessarily on the outcome or the stakes, right. right? So right. I can think of a basic failure would be we amputated the wrong limb, right? right. That is devastating right. for a patient, yeah. uh, but it's a basic failure that should be prevented. Yes. Complex. So I'll, just, I'll just interrupt and yep. say, yes, basic doesn't mean small. Let's, let's be clear about that, right? A basic failure can be very large and consequential indeed, but it's just that single cause. And, and complex failure, on the other hand, is what I live, I think, every day in the ICU, right? Because it's a complex yes. environment with every action has so many parts to it. And a lot of complex failures that we experience in the ICU might be, for example, they were about to give the wrong type of blood, but they, they, they did a check and they recognized it. So they didn't give the wrong type of blood. Right. So no harm to the patient, but still was a failure of the process, right? Right, right. And, and that's the beauty of it is that so many of our process failures can be caught and corrected. And I think you're doing better at that nowadays. I think that like everything, right, uh, talking about the problem is the first step. But I do agree. I think there are pockets of excellence in healthcare. But mm. I think that if you were to take the average of the thousands of hospitals that we have in the United States, there's mm. still a lot of room for opportunity. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, better doesn't mean best. Yes, I agree. And intelligent failure, I just want to um, make the point that our, our audience in general, I think, is a very clinically oriented audience, Amy. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy in the context of research to understand intelligent failure or in the context sure. of um, development of new products, right? However, mm -hmm. I would say that a great example of intelligent failure is covid some teams organized the delivery of care with small pilots and were learning very fast and adapting very fast because they were psychologically safe teams where everybody could say, why don't we do this this way? Why don't we do this the other way? Yeah. And I think that the delivery of care yeah. is a great example of how we can be smarter about um, intelligent failures. That's great. That's actually a beautiful example in my view because it was, it was new territory for everybody. And the, these don't have to be formal experiments like in a laboratory, but there was a lot of experimenting. And, and, and oh, we discovered we could make an ICU in a tent. I mean, there, there, was, there was a lot of, of iteration that went on. And the more thoughtful you were in that iteration, the better off you were in making progress in that new territory. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Amy, is... Um, I've seen you and I've seen in some of your previous papers and I'm sure that it also in the book you talk about it on, on a spectrum of this is blameworthy to this is praiseworthy, mm -hmm. right? There is a context uh, that goes and I think it's important to recognize even when somebody does something wrong, uh, commits right. an error, it's not always their fault. And especially no. when I talk to, no. our, to our clinical leaders, I think it's important to talk about that. Could you talk about that, but overlap it with the process knowledge spectrum? Yes. So, so the process knowledge spectrum basically points to the reality that in our processes, whether in healthcare or any other industry, um, there's a spectrum from highly routine work that we know um, we're, we're, we're good at, we know exactly what, how we want things to unfold. This is, of course, an automotive assembly line or, you know, I think about um, an area of medicine that, you, that is more routine than other aspects. Oh, and then we move to the right in the spectrum toward variable work where we have a lot of knowledge about how to get the result we want and there's a high need for customization or variability of, of, of arrival times, you know, all sorts of sort of 
complexity is introduced into our process by that. And if we keep going to the right, we get to what I call novel contexts, where the knowledge is very undeveloped. And so we have no choice but to experiment and see what works to develop the knowledge that may make some activity routine in the future, but it's not routine uh, today. So that's that. basically that's a spectrum from very, very low uncertainty to very, very high uncertainty. Now, I would argue in all three of those domains, you can have both praiseworthy and blameworthy actions. And I suppose I'm, I'm a little bit of a purist on blameworthy. I, I like to really only call things blameworthy where the person was, was deliberately, you know, intent on causing harm or at least um, intent on not really trying in a situation where, where, where their effort was needed. Um, and, um, and then we move to the right. And let's, let's say someone is, you know, let's say the root cause of a failure is someone didn't pay attention. There's an airline accident in, in the book that happened 40 years ago, Air Florida Flight 90, that was just a single human error in not putting the anti-ice on led to this catastrophic fatal accident, right? So, you know, that that's um, not paying attention isn't always blameworthy, but it can be blameworthy if... I mean, it, can, it may even be the supervisor who puts someone in a position where they just wouldn't be able to be alert for that long a time uh, that, that led to uh, the outcome. Whereas praiseworthy is any attempt to try, you know, any attempt to try something new and being fully cognizant of what's at stake so that you don't unnecessarily create risk, um, especially safety risks, um, can can be thought of as praiseworthy and i think an, a, a perfect example for healthcare and just um, thinking of my own um litany of, of errors uh, when i was a critical care fellow um, after a 36 hour shift i punctured myself with a needle <gasps> right i mean oh, and, yeah. and and that probably was inattention yeah. uh, that's yeah. i mean you didn't follow protocol but um, so a needle stick and uh, uh, yet the context and we'll talk about that later mm. is very important. Right. I mean, uh, yes. uh, anybody who's fatigued, anybody right. who who's overworked is going to more likely to make those errors. Right. right? And, right. And, and, and I remember that the shame of trying to get oh. help for that. And I'm sure that this is a story that a lot of our listeners have mm -hmm. experienced or know in different variations. And that's really why I think it's so important to talk about all this for healthcare. I agree. In 36 hours, I mean, I, the human being was not designed uh, to work for 36 hours straight and then be just as good at, at the end of that time as you were at the beginning of that time. So, I agree. so that is a, a context factor that matters greatly. And this is why I say we have to learn from failures thoughtfully, because if you don't take into consideration in your analysis the, the contributing factors such as that, you will get faulty answers to your analysis. So can we do a little bit of a deeper dive into the types of failures? So we talked about basic errors, which I think in the in the context of clinical medicine uh, are well well recognized today mm. right uh, transfusing um, the wrong type of blood um, dosing somebody uh, with t 10x right which still happens right. of, of, right. A, of a narcotic uh, amputating the wrong side mm. the wrong limb these are all mm. examples of basic failures which could have deadly consequences mm. and i think that like everything in life prevention right is worth a what do they mm -hmm. say? Uh, a, a, a ton right. of, of treatment. Could you talk about some of the strategies for preventing basic errors? Yes, you know, I I, um, I often feel embarrassed to talk about this because it's so basic, um, and I'm going to be saying things that your listeners already know. 
Um, but but the, the fundamental preventions for basic failures are training. And so we, we, we don't want to short change our short change training, whether we're in medicine or in manufacturing. We want to, we want to make sure people have what they need um, in, in being trained in procedures so that they have a, a good shot at doing them well. Um, failure proofing, right? You, you rarely leave instruments inside a patient anymore because you often have the instruments in nests that make it crystal clear if something's missing it's got to be somewhere you better find it before you sew up for example or it's just a maybe a simple example of, of failure proofing but you can think of all sorts of failure proofing um you know mechanisms that you that you build into your practice or build into your to your life um sharing uh, you know speaking psychological safety to help people um speak up quickly and and have blameless reporting of of things that go wrong so that we can collect those data and be better informed about where the risks are uh, is another strategy for um, preventing as many basic failures as possible. Um, and and um, um, I guess that's, you know, I guess those are the top ones that come to mind, but you can see how, you know, th these aren't what I'll call rocket science. These are very basic, very fundamental examples of good practice and, and i think that it's important to, to, to talk about these and think about them because a lot of people know these things but it doesn't right. mean that it happens every time for every patient and right. even in academic centers there's still oh, yeah. basic failures going on but one of right. the the areas that i wanted to to dig a little bit deeper is checklist or codifying yes, um, um, yes. prevention because it seems that since uh, Atulga won this wonderful book and Peter Pronovost, mm -hmm. I mean, really, I, I think uh, kind of um, breaking, revolution. yeah, revolutionary <laughs> study with, with central line, something that we do every day in the ICU, checklists are everywhere in healthcare. And right. uh, what, what fascinated me, Amy, reading the book was the transcript of the, uh, I think, of the Florida air that, uh, airplane yep. that you mentioned, yep. right? Yes. Can you just talk a little right. bit about that? Sure. So, you know, first of all, I I, I, I erred in in a sense that should have been at the very top of my list of of failure, basic failure prevention is checklists and um, and yet and I do this deliberately in the book. I include this Air Florida flight in 1982 that that um, crashed because despite I'll say despite the checklist because the checklist was used in a highly mindless. Uh, routine, um, almost you know, autopilot. Forgive the parallel uh, manner. So the the um, the first officer said anti ice, and then the captain said off. Right, and the correct answer. It was a January wintry icy day. The correct answer is of course on, and that led to this horrific crash. So the the takeaway as you all know well, is that checklists are a very powerful, you know, a profound tool even, and they must be used while awake, right? They must be used deliberately, thoughtfully. If we don't take them seriously, we don't see them as the useful tool that they are, and we just sort of go through the motions, as it were, then they won't do their job. Excellent. And in terms of complex failures, we, we, we mentioned that these are also very, very prevalent in healthcare, especially in a setting like the one our listeners work in, which is the ICU. It's not mm -hmm. only high complexity, but high stakes uh, on a daily basis. You did mention the Swiss cheese theory a little bit earlier. Could mm -hmm. you just explain that um, a little bit more for some of our listeners may not be as familiar? Absolutely. So Jim Reason, who is the... Um uh, error. He's an error theorist uh, in uh, the UK. Um, is the one who came up with this metaphor, and and I like to say if you think about the holes in Swiss cheese, you know, any hole in your cheese is not something that contributes to to your nutrition. So it's a, it's a kind of error. Those those little air bubbles, and he used this metaphor to say it's fine for your cheese to have holes it's no harm done but when the holes line up they create a tunnel that lets the 
lets the failure flow through. So the idea is it's uh, many of our processes are, are slightly flawed in a variety of ways. There's deviations here, there's deviations there, but every now and then the deviations all line up in such a way that allows the failure to just slip on right through. And why this is a useful metaphor is that it, it points out that these kinds of failures aren't the norm, of course, but they are preventable if we're really paying attention because all you have to do is catch one bubble, right? If you, if you can just, the, the tunnel won't work to allow the failure through if there's even one of the factors that gets noticed and altered uh, before, before the failure happens. So I think it's empowering. I think it's meant to say, speak up, even if you are have very low confidence that you've spotted a concern, speak up anyway. Your voice is welcome here. And, and I think that in healthcare, a lot of our listeners may have been part of root cause analysis of some sentinel event or some complex failure. And as you go backwards, so for example, a child received a overdose of a narcotic and went into respiratory distress. And, right. right. If you go backwards all the point to where the the, the, the medication was prescribed, mm-hmm. you might find multiple opportunities for intervention that would have avoided that happening. Right. I think you alluded to exactly. that. And I think the term that yeah. you use in your research is the recovery window. And yes, it, yes. And I think that that's important because in retrospect, it's easy to figure out. Right. But right. why doesn't it happen in real time? And that's where, like you said, speaking up, psychological safety and paying attention is really important. I think a lot of times also people really, whether it's imposter syndrome or common knowledge effect, Mm. they assume that this doesn't feel right, but it's okay, right? Right. Somebody else must know better than me. And and that's a big problem. Yeah. They assume, oh, I probably just didn't read up on the latest literature or... I'm new here or, 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 right? and they, they, they make the assumption, which is fine in, you know, your social life to, I don't think I'll speak up about that right here, right now, but in healthcare, and I would say in, in work environments more generally, we have to flip that script and say, no, no, no. Even when in very real doubt, we need to hear from you. And finally, we have intelligent failures and one of the things I want to make sure our listeners understand is that we can always learn from failure. That mm-hmm. doesn't make it the right kind of wrong, right? Right. Uh, right. Maybe it's failing well is, we can talk about that later, but intelligent failure specifically uh, have a very um, precise mm-hmm. definition and setting. Could you talk a little bit about that in the context yes. of healthcare? Yes, thank you. I, I, um, I think there are, there's really four questions uh, to ask, you know, is this new territory or is there existing available knowledge that I can look up and use? Um, And are we, do you, do you glimpse an opportunity? So it's opportunity driven. There's a goal, you know, taking care of patients, a new treatment, or, you know, even just getting better at a a particular procedure, right? That you've got a goal in mind that, that makes it worth the modest experimentation that's about to happen. Um, Have you done your homework? Have you read the literature or talked to experts or found out what you could about what is known before you go off into this unknown territory to try something new? And then finally, and so importantly in healthcare especially, the experiment should be as small as possible. Right. You want you want to mitigate the risks um, that that are inherent in new territory uh, by keeping your experiments um, just large enough to learn, but not so large that you're actually wasting resources or putting uh, putting un, uh, undesirable risks in there. And I think that the 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 pilot and the size of your of your pilot, for example, I think is very valuable. I often think of, uh, I guess, in the tech world or in the startup world, they talk about mm. the minimum viable product, right? Yes. Uh, can, what can, how much do you need to invest in effort, time, and money to, to get an idea if it's going to work or not, right? And, I, and this is very common in healthcare delivery as a mistake. People say, oh, we got to change this, and they change it across a large scale, and then it doesn't work, right? Uh, that would be, right. I think, a great example of clinicians 
using intelligent failure to improve the way they run their office, the way they would run their ICUs. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, that is outside of the context of research, which a lot of our physicians right. and APPs who listen to us don't do. Yes, that's right. And it's, I mean, I think this, the size issue is quite subtle and quite important, which is um, you always want to have, I love the term minimum viable product or, you know, minimum viable process. Like if you can, you must use your, you know, your brain to design the, the, the experiment such that it's just big enough um, to be valid uh, to learn from, but, but no bigger as to, as to create waste. So if it's a, you know, if it's a, if it's a new procedure in your office, you know, test it out on with a particular subset of patients or test it out on Mondays or whatever the appropriate um, move is, but don't, um, don't assume, don't roll things out before they're ready for prime time. So the way I process all this, uh, Amy, is that failing well is understanding the different types of failure. Mm -hmm. It's putting every effort we have to prevent basic and complex failures. And when those occurs, it's trying to truly learn from them so we can improve our mm -hmm. processes and in the right context, it's applying intelligent failure. Now, your your expertise is the science behind that. Can we talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, I just want to give you an A plus because that's exactly right. And and I don't think everybody appreciates that. Maybe they, you know, they, they, they're out there reading the sort of short digital articles on this topic and you know they decide that failing well is all about the you know fail fast break things but to me what you just said is exactly right failing well is about preventing as many bad failures basic and complex as humanly possible and it's about increasing our willingness to engage in smart experimentation to make progress in new territory and welcoming the still undesired, but welcoming the failures that come our way. So that's that's exactly right. So being able to distinguish, but also being really good preventers and then really good experimenters. So one of the words that I hear a lot these days when we talk about failure in healthcare is high reliability organizations or mm -hmm. HROs. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about those? And is that just a fancy name for a psychologically <laughs> safe envi environment? Yes, and I think it's it's a fancy name for a psychologically safe environment, but that's not all it is. So I think HROs are um, high reliability organizations are profoundly psychologically safe environments because one of the principles is that people at any level of a hierarchy will speak up, you know, immediately and forcefully if they they see something wrong. So these are organizations that are really, really good at catching and correcting deviations. They understand that deviations will happen. And so they're not, you know, they, I don't think they would ever use the term failure is not an option because what they understand is failure is always a possibility. More than the rest of us, people in HROs truly appreciate that failure is always a possibility. So they don't want them to happen if they're preventable, so they're you know acutely sensitive um, and 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 to you know to to subtle changes and and committed to speaking up about them. So what it has in addition to psychological safety, which is that permission for voice, is it has just a high level of sensitivity that people have a mindset that says, "Yep, things could go wrong," and that they have a high level of just. Um, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of um, Carl Weick, who's written about this, calls it heedful interrelating. They're very aware of each other. They're aware of what each other is doing. It's not just, okay, let me do my job, you do your job, and all will be well. It's sort of, there's a, there's a lot of very thoughtful um, thoughtful interactions. And, and so I think HROs really appreciate um, that failures in their context, whether it's nuclear power or an aircraft carrier, are so consequential that they really, really, really are committed to them not happening. And I think the interrelatedness awareness in healthcare mm -hmm. is important because A, we're a team, but more, I think more significant, we live in silos. Right. Yes. And I think historically in healthcare, you know, long, long ago when you had the horse and buggy doctors and, you know, you essentially had clinicians with their shingles and 
they couldn't do much for you, but you know they were good people doing their best with the knowledge that was available at the time. And as medicine has gotten more and more complex and more and more subspecialties and, and interdisciplinarity, our mindsets, your mindsets, haven't always caught up, right? So there's still this idea, I'm a professional, I'm an expert, I should have what it takes and know what to do to care for my patients. And that's fine and good. And also, one needs to be aware that in to care for my patients, especially the hospitalized ones, I am utterly dependent on so many others, you know, at the bedside and in other parts of the organization where where back office things are ha happening, where where drugs are being um, you know put into cartridges and all of the rest. So it's it's just a profoundly interdependent system, and your mental models haven't always kept up with that interdependence. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, Amy, is the power of shame versus embracing vulnerability. Huh. Yeah, so to me, they're very different things, but I can see how people would confuse them or sort of think of them as, as, as highly related. So embracing vulnerability, um, to me, is simply embracing a fact, right? Each and every one of us is vulnerable. We're vulnerable because we can't see the future. We're vulnerable because we're fallible human beings and things both we will make mistakes and our systems will will have little breakdowns so we're vulnerable by fact and the only real question mark our only decision is whether we're willing to acknowledge that and and sort of use that fact to shape our thinking and shape our behaving so that's just to me it's a strength like vulnerability means i am strong enough to know that i'm vulnerable um, whereas, whereas shame is to believe, really quite erroneously, that that vulnerability is um, is somehow wrong and and indicates that I'm not a good person or not a worthy person. And I think as a as a leader, it's important to be vulnerable at the right times. You also want to inspire confidence to your team. Yeah. But like when somebody makes a mistake. We made, we failed. We made a mistake. Let's let's move forward and try to learn from this, right? It invites others right. to say the same thing. Exactly. I mean, first of all, you if you're a leader in healthcare, you must go first. You must demonstrate the example of honesty, of speaking up, of of acknowledging when you've come up short. It just you must, or else no one else will. Um, but 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 also, I think by you can both acknowledge your individual vulnerability and acknowledge the vulnerability of say our ICU because those are those are just uh, facts while also express extreme confidence in our ability to deliver great care but when we are at our best when we are working together when we are honest when we are asking for help when we're in over our heads we can really do almost anything so it's a it's not um, you know, it, to acknowledge your individual vulnerability is not to give up on the strength of your teams or the strength of your organizations. Read that becoming is better than being, which I think is another way of saying learning mm. over knowing. Yes. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about in this pursuit of learning from 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 all failures, a little bit of how we can reframe failure and how can we play to win versus not to lose? <laughs> well, I think we have to reframe failure as a um, as a, a necessary or inevitable part of life, especially a full life, especially a life of, of achievement even, um, that, that I have not met anyone who's achieved a lot who hasn't experienced lots of failures along the way. And so the reframe has to be from failure is bad and shameful, and I don't want to have it or I don't want to admit it if I do have it, to failure is on the path to successes um, and working together and at our very best we can prevent the preventable ones the basic and complex ones and we can embrace um, the intelligent ones in new territory so that 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 is the reframe and I, I believe that as I as I as I describe it that way you begin to realize this is kind of a team sport and 
I don't think you can do any teaming whatsoever if you're not willing to choose learning over knowing. And that has to be a kind of explicit override because our default state is to believe we know. You know, I believe I'm right, you're wrong, you know, when we disagree. And I have to kind of train myself to say, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe I'm missing something. And and that's not a shameful thing. That's like just a fact of life. And now I'm curious. Now I want to know what you see that I miss because it's going to help me. Perfect. And what about in the book and some of your research, you talk about stop, challenge, choose. How do we incorporate that? <laughs> well, stop, challenge, choose is a little kind of cognitive habit that I suggest um, our listeners um, practice. And and that is the, the sort of the self-discipline to pause, right? If there's any uncertainty at all, which is often the case, just pause for a moment and check what you're thinking and then challenge it. Like, I wonder what I'm missing. And then choose the path of learning. And that can be in a disagreement with your partner. That can be in a, um, you know, a, a, a clinical intervention you're about to make. Just pause Take a close look at what you're thinking and why, and then, you know, to see whether there could be any gaps that are that are important here, and then choose a learning path forward. The last thing I wanted to ask you as we as we start closing, Amy, is obviously um, great people and bad systems will mm. underperform, and we don't think enough about systems yeah. in healthcare. Any any comments on how we incorporate that into everything we discussed? Well, you know, in the in the book, I, I use the example of um, Children's Minnesota just because I have studied it. I, I studied it a while ago closely as part of the patient safety research. Um, that there's, I use it as an example of an organization that I think any organization can do without any healthcare organization without a ton of of um, you know cost or 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 new equipment or anything like that is just a, a kind of a mindful recognition of the way the different elements of a system you know your your um, your staffing systems your training systems your technology your mindsets your culture your reporting systems and all the rest how they how they interact in ways that create more than the sum of the parts. I think we have a tendency, certainly in management, we have a tendency to look at elements and to analyze the heck out of elements. And we're less likely to look at how different elements of a system relate to each other and create unintended consequences or create mutually reinforcing uh, strengths that we want to make sure we design on purpose. We covered, I think, a lot of ground. And as we move from understanding and theory to action, I think uh, Herb Spencer said many, many centuries ago that <laughs> the whole point of education is not knowledge but action, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Any tips mm -hmm. and pearls for our ICUs and moving towards uh, failing better? Well, I think the most important action in the ICU is the action of speaking up. It is the action of asking for help. It's the action of... of asking good questions. If you're a, a clinician leader in an ICU environment, you your best action is to pause and say, ah, what am I missing? Ask people, oh, what did you see last night? What thoughts do you have? Um, maybe it'll only be one out of 10 times that you hear something that you didn't expect, but that one will be well worth it. So the crucial action, I would argue, is the action of inquiry. Invite people to participate. And listen to understand, yeah. right? Yes, indeed. So, Amy, um, you've been on the podcast before. We'd like to close with a couple of questions unrelated, I guess, to the topic. Mm -hmm. Although, in this case, they will be related to the topic. <laughs> the first question is, uh, any book or books you would recommend for our readers after they've done with Right Kind of Wrong to expand <laughs> their journey uh, on learning about failing well? Yes, I'm going to recommend Adapt by Tim Harford. Um, which kind of takes is he's he's a beautiful writer and it takes on some of these issues in more of the management space, and then 
in this sort of psychological and sociological space is a beautiful book called Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz, which goes more deeply into you know, our, our, our sense of, of, of shame and discomfort with being wrong and how, again, that's something we have to learn to welcome. Perfect. And we'll definitely link those in the show notes. And also, we'll link our previous conversation on psychological safety, which I think, as you said, is the underpinning for, for all of what we discussed today. And uh, the last question is, as we close, could you share with us your favorite failure? Well, my favorite failure, which is in the book, concerns Ray Dalio, who was a, a tremendously successful person in finance. His investment business, Bridgewater Associates, um, has been one of the most successful companies in, in history, and he's the entrepreneur who started it. But seven years into uh, that company's existence, uh, Dalio had made an absolutely wrong bet in new territory about the economy and lost everything he had. Now, I think our leaders will notice that is not an intelligent failure. Everything about it was fine except the size, right? It was new territory. He had a hypothesis. He had a goal. And yet that experiment was much too big for uncertain territory. So uh, the reason it's my favorite failure is not just because it misses being intelligent, but even more because he came away from it a changed man. He says, in retrospect, that failure was the best thing that ever happened to me. It taught me to temper my arrogance, my confidence, and replace it with a kind of humility that says, instead of I'm right, I wonder why I think I'm right. That is the shift that I think great clinicians can and should make, right? It doesn't involve being insecure. It just involves being strong enough to say, I wonder why I think I'm right. And then you get curious. And so I think it was a, it was a profound insight for him and I think for others as well. And I think it speaks to the idea that it's not about having answers, but having great questions. Mm, precisely. Amy, always a pleasure. Uh, thank you for putting out such wonderful work, uh, both at the research level, but also in framing it in a, in a way that everybody can understand with your books. Uh, like we were speaking beforehand, I think this is critical for all clinicians, especially in the ICU. And uh, um, look forward to, to more in the future. Sure. And uh, again, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Well, thank you for the work that you do. It really matters. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.